Welcome to the Cars Deep and Wide podcast. This is episode nine with Sam Storms. Well, on our last episode, we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. Here we're taking on another easy subject, uh, the doctrine of eschatology or the last things. We have the privilege of having Dr. Sam Storms on the podcast. He's written a book about the subject entitled Kingdom Come. If you've ever been perplexed like we all have about this topic and wondered when is Jesus coming back and how is he coming back, this is the episode for you. So I'm really pleased to have Sam on the podcast, and I hope you really enjoy this conversation I recently had with him. Well, I have Sam Storms on the line here, and we are going to be talking about eschatology today. And I just want to say thanks, Sam, for, for taking the time on your Thursday to, to talk to us. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be with you. Well, great. Well, first of all, when we talk about eschatology, what does that even mean, and why is it important, and how do we even see it in Scripture? Sure. Well, the word eschatology is one of those big theological terms. Uh, it basically means the study of the end times or the last things. Mm-hmm. But really, eschatology covers more than just you know what we would typically associate with the second coming of Christ or the end of history. Um, eschatology really is the, the study of the advance and development and ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God. So mm-hmm. we have to go all the way back into the Old Testament and into... Uh, the the life of Jesus, uh, but typically pe- people will think in terms of end times or last things. So that is the primary focus uh, of that particular topic. Okay, great. Well, there are a number of different views on the end times, and scholars that we both know and trust take pretty dramatically different perspectives. Um, if that's the case, why should we even worry about determining our view on this? Well, I think for one reason is because the Bible has extensive teaching on it. And, I mean, if we were to say, well, it doesn't matter uh, what I think about the end times, we're saying I, it doesn't matter what I think about dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of biblical texts. Mm-hmm. And we really can't expect to understand what God's purpose is and what his principles for uh, uh, for expanding the kingdom and the life of the church would be, apart from eschatology. Um I mean, we, you know, for example, we could, uh, we could pretty much say that about a lot of topics like, uh, well, there are a lot of different views of church government, so, and people differ, so why bother? Well, we bother because we want to be as biblical as we can in terms of how we, um, organize our local churches. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the same thing is true when it comes to eschatology, plus the fact that all through the Bible, the purpose of eschatology is ethical or moral. And what I mean by that is, um, the the aim of telling us about the coming of Christ and the events surrounding it is to motivate us to holiness and godliness of life and to repentance. Mm-hmm. And so if we really want to live in a way that is to the glory of God, uh, we need to understand what is involved in the, God's purposes for the consummation of history. Hmm. 
That's helpful. Well, in Grudem's theology, he starts out talking about the when and the how of the end. So I kind of want to take that road to start out. Can you help us understand the when first? When will Jesus return and how much can we know about that as his people? Well, of course, if I knew when Jesus was going to return, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have to work for a living. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> right. I would be able to, uh, to just sell my information at the highest price. But seriously, um, we don't know when. Now, there are people who say that uh, the Bible gives us certain indications that when this event or that event uh, transpires, I'm not inclined to think in those terms. I Honestly, uh, the end could happen in the middle of this conversation that we're having right now. Uh, I believe that uh, Jesus could return at any moment and uh, consummate his kingdom. In terms of the how, is that the other side of the question, the how? That's the other side, exactly. Yeah, now that is a much bigger and more complex topic. Just to give you one example, there are those, and this is the most popular view of eschatology among evangelicals, um, who believe that um, the next event is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Christ returns in the heavens and he uh, catches up or translates or raptures all believers into his presence. And then he returns to heaven and there ensues uh, the seven-year period of called the Great Tribulation, the emergence of the Antichrist, and then seven years after Christ raptured us, he returns again for the second coming. So that that is a one particular viewpoint. Um, um, my particular perspective is is that the so-called rapture and the second coming are simultaneous. They are just two phases of the same event, that Christ will return, he'll catch us up unto himself, we'll receive our glorified bodies, and then he continues his descent to earth, at which time he will destroy his enemies and um, inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. So there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to the how. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly at the very center, and this is what unites all of us as believers, is that Jesus Christ will return visibly, personally, physically at the end of history it's not just a spiritual coming it is a physical coming in his glorified resurrected body Uh, as we read in acts chapter one the angel said just as you've seen him taken up into heaven so he will return to you in like manner Uh, so that's the that's the most fundamental element in the how Mm -hmm. great well could you talk then you you started to get into this um talking about a premillennial position and in your view, which, you know, from your book is amillennial. Can you, can you talk about those major millennial views and sure. how people agree and disagree and then strengths and weaknesses of the views? Sure. Well, I'll try to be simple. Uh, it's a complex, uh, multifaceted debate, but I'll try to be as simple as I can. Uh, what unites us all, obviously, as I just said, is we believe that Christ is coming back again to consummate his kingdom. Mm-hmm. The language of premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial is designed to um, tell what you believe about the relationship between the coming of Christ and the earthly rule or reign of Christ. So, for example, a premillennialist. P-R-E, the, the, the prefix there is important, believes that Christ will come before the 1,000-year earthly reign that he will establish uh, from Jerusalem on this present earth. 
the post again, the word post is important, believes that the millennium is in some sense yet to come on this earth, but the second coming of Christ will happen after the millennium has emerged. The amillennialist, and I'm not real wild about that term, but mm-hmm. we haven't come up with really a better one. The reason I don't like it is because that little A on in the front of millennium, um, the alpha privative seems to suggest that I deny that there is a millennium, that there's mm-hmm. no millennium. But that's not the case at all. I believe very much in the millennial kingdom. I just believe it happens to be what is happening right now in heaven in what we call the intermediate state where Christ is ruling over the nations and those who have died and gone to be with Christ are sharing his reign, his rule. They are co-regents, as it were. Mm-hmm. So the amillennialist believes that the millennium is the reign of Christ right now from heaven over the nations in which his saints share. Um, the post-millennialist is the one who thinks the millennium is going to emerge gradually. Uh, sometime, you never know what they might say. They might say we've already started or it's maybe could be a hundred or even a thousand years away, but it will be a golden age in which the church, uh, through the power of the gospel gradually Christianizes the world. And after that, Christ will return. The premillennialist believes that basically this world is going to get worse and worse and that Christ will return and then he will establish the millennial kingdom of a literal 1,000 years um, on this earth prior to the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. So those are general perspectives. Okay, great. And there are two different premillennial views, right? I mean, you you have the dispensation yes, there view, are. but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I was actually raised and educated in the dispensational premillennial view. And uh, the word dispensational simply refers to the idea that God has differing methods or or ways in which he uh, leads, guides, and rules over his people, depending on the particular period of history. So, for example, uh, prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, uh, you had a dispensation. The, you, the Mosaic, the time of the Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, is one particular dispensation. We are living in the dispensation of the New Covenant that was instituted by Christ. But the most important element in dispensationalism is their argument that the Church and Israel are two separate peoples of God, mm-hmm. operating in two different covenants. And the church is God's heavenly people, and Israel is God's earthly people. And so dispensationalists typically argue that uh, God set aside his dealings with his earthly people, Israel, when they rejected Jesus in the first century. And he is now dealing with his heavenly people, the church. And, of course, they argue that when the rapture occurs, the church will be taken out of this world. Mm -hmm. God will resume his uh, dealings with Israel. And that when Christ then returns after the tribulation, he will establish this literal millennial kingdom on the earth primarily for the sake of Israel. And dispensationalists will vary on how they envision the church interacting with Israel during that period. Historical premillennialists don't typically embrace this strict distinction between Israel and the church. Historic premillennialists would argue, as I do, mm-hmm. and as, as all amillennialists do, that there's only one people of God, the elect. 
Now, there are differing ethnicities within that one people. There are believing Jews and believing Gentiles, mm-hmm. but there's only one body of uh, the elect, and we all share equally in the promises given to us in Scripture. And so even though the historic premillennialist believes that Christ will rule for a literal 1,000 years from Jerusalem, they don't see any differentiation between how believing Jews and believing Gentiles will relate one to another and to the promises of God. They are all one covenant people. So that's the major distinction between the dispensational and the historic premillennial views is how do you view the relationship between Israel and the church? Are there two peoples of God, or is there only one people who share equally in the divine promises? Okay, great. Well, I know that you have migrated, you said, from a dispensational view to an amillennial view. Can can you talk a little bit about that? And then also with that, how come you didn't end up historic premill like you just talked about? Well, I, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which is dispensational mm-hmm. premillennial. And mm-hmm. um, pretty much for the first year or two there, that was the view that I had embraced. It's the view that I believed when I first started seminary. But the more I studied scripture, um, I just couldn't embrace dispensationalism. I, I kept seeing the the unity of the one people of God, uh, that Gentiles are now co-heirs with Israel, as uh, Ephesians 2, 11 and following would indicate, as Galatians 3 teaches, and uh, Romans 11. And uh, so when I graduated from Dallas, I was not quite, but almost historic premillennial. And then I held that view for about six or seven years. And what shifted me from from a premillennial to an amillennial view was a very simple study that I conducted. I I read the New Testament and took note very carefully of everything that it says will happen at the time of the second coming of Christ. And I noticed several things. For example, I noticed this consistent teaching that when Christ returns, physical death will end. It will be conquered. It will be swallowed up in life. There will be no no physical death after the second coming of Jesus. I kept seeing that there would be, at the time of the second coming, um, a a single resurrection. In other words, all humanity received their resurrection bodies, whether the non-elect and um, they are consigned to hell and the elect who enter into heaven. I saw that at the second coming, there's one judgment, one final judgment at which all um, are assessed uh, before the presence of God. Um, I, I, I noticed that when Christ returns, all hope or possibility for coming to saving faith ends, that there's no chance, further chance for salvation beyond the time of the second coming. I noticed also that um, that the curse that came as a result of Adam's fall would be lifted and God would utterly redeem and renew the earth and remove the curse and remove the sin. Um, so all of these things, and there are a few others I would include in there as well, but, um, oh, oh yeah, one other thing, that I, I kept seeing that when Christ returns, the the unsaved are um, enter into eternal punishment and the saved enter into eternal life. So I ask myself the question, how is it possible if all these things happen at the second coming that you can have a earthly 1,000-year reign of Christ that follows the second coming in which physical death still occurs, people can still come to saving faith in Jesus, 
the natural creation is still suffering from the curse. Uh, there are multiplicity of resurrections, multiplicity of judgments, and it isn't till at the millennium that they tell us that people either enter into heaven or into hell. So I had a real problem. And what I discovered was that all of these truths simply rule out and utterly preclude the possibility that following Christ's return, there will be a literal 1,000-year rule upon the earth. It's just it's just not possible, as far as I can tell. And so I, the closer I studied what John was talking about was the experience of those who are martyred for their faith and the experience of all those who die in faith in Christ, who enter into what we call the intermediate state. And the millennial reign is the co-regency, if I can use that word. They share the sovereign rule of Christ right now as he uh, providentially oversees all of history, um, moving toward the time when he will return to this earth. And so I believe that when Christ does finally come to this earth, at that very moment, he will establish what we know as the new heavens and the new earth, or what we call the eternal state. And we will live with Christ forever on the earth, but it's the renewed earth. It's the restored earth, not the not this present earth that is still subject to the curse and and sin and evil, but the the new earth where righteousness dwells, where all evil has been banished. So that's how I became from a dispensational premillennialist to a historic premillennialist, and now where I'm I'm an amillennialist. Well, sorry, I keep coming back to the the question: What difference does it make? But I know that's what a lot of people would say. What would you say are the the main implications of each of the views? What are some of the um, ways that where you stand on the millennium makes a practical difference in the way you live? Well, I think um, let, let me just say this. I think as long as we all unite in our belief in the second coming of Christ, that the differences mm-hmm. uh, beyond that are secondary. In other words, I don't think Christians should divide or or get angry or no. question the salvation of people who who have a different view of the millennium or a bit different view of the tribulation and rapture and so on. Um if someone denies that Jesus Christ is coming again, then we have a real problem. And it's the it's the truth of Christ's mm-hmm. return. Like first John uh chapter three, verses one through three. Uh we know that when we shall when we see him we shall be like him, and whoever has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. So it's the hope of seeing Christ that purifies us. Uh, Philippians three twenty and 21, where Paul says, uh, it's knowing that we are awaiting a Savior from heaven who will come and transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his own. That's the foundation, Paul says, for living a godly life now. Um, so there are numerous passages mm-hmm. that, that talk about that. Now, there are a couple of differences. For example, and I'm just speaking from my own personal perspective. Dispensational premillennialists, and to a lesser degree historic premillennialists, place a great emphasis on the nation of Israel. And it actually governs their political views about how we should relate to Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, And they think that everything that is unfolding as we come closer and closer to the end is somehow tied into what happens to Israel as a nation. I personally don't believe that. Now, I do believe we should support Israel. Israel is our ally. 
I believe Israel has a right to the land. I don't think they have a biblical right or a covenantal right. I believe they have a historical, political, and military right. So I do support Israel, but I don't uh, see God um, reestablishing the nation Israel as a people unto himself that is parallel to the church. And so that that has an effect on, on certain aspects of life. But I think perhaps the biggest is the difference between those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. This idea that um, that a really serious time of intense persecution is coming. It's called this Great Tribulation, seven years in length. But don't worry, Christian. You don't have to worry about suffering. God's going to come, and he's going to rapture you out of here, and you're going to be preserved and protected from that kind of horrific persecution. And a, that does affect how we live, and it also affects how we view others throughout mm-hmm. the world. Um, because I believe that we are going to enter into a time of, of intensified persecution, but I believe all Christians who are alive will remain on the earth during that period. And we need to be prepared uh, for uh, facing the uh, opposition and adversity that, that will come our way. But, of course, we need to remember that there are Christians on the other side of the earth who are already suffering horrific persecution, imprisonment, mm-hmm. torture, death. Um, so they are already suffering about as badly as human beings can suffer. We in America uh, really have no right to talk about persecution. We have not endured anything compared to what our brothers and sisters have. But again, if if your if your perspective is, I don't need to be ready. I don't need to uh, be strong and mature and stable and and uh, have the courage in Christ to to withstand um, the opposition of the world because God has promised to return before that happens and rapture us out of here. That kind of escapist mentality, in my opinion, is very dangerous, and I think it's lulling some Christians to sleep. Mm, yeah. Well, in the American church, when you hear people talk about the end times, it seems like they, they gravitate to the book of Revelation, to the book of Daniel. Maybe Matthew 24 gets thrown into the conversation. Can you talk maybe more generally at first about how those sections of Scripture relate to this discussion? Sure. Uh, particularly Matthew 24. I have two chapters in my book, Kingdom Come, where I address verse by verse the, that chapter. It's called the Olivet Discourse cause, because Jesus delivered it on the Mount of Olives. Um, and the question is, in that passage, is Jesus talking about the future? Is he talking about the last seven years of human history? I don't believe so. I think his primary focus is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and of the city itself and the judgment that came upon Israel at that time. So I think what Jesus is describing is the events that will transpire between his ascension to the right hand of the Father in 33 A.D. and the final destruction of the city and the temple in 70 A.D. And I think he's preparing his disciples for how to live during that particular period of time. That's why he says uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And everywhere that those terms, this generation, appear in the Gospels, it refers to the contemporaries of Jesus, those living at his particular place in history. So I think Matthew 24 is largely concerned with what transpired 
between 33 and 70 AD. However, I will say that it's entirely possible that the events of that period of time are something of a uh, model or pattern or paradigm of what will occur on a more global scale at the end of history. So it might be a little bit of a both-and rather than an either-or. So uh, the same is true in the book of Revelation. Uh, now, Revelation, that's a big topic. We can't obviously bite all of that off <laughs> in our conversation. Um, some people think that Revelation is exclusively about the future, that it's altogether and entirely about the last seven years of human history leading up to the return of Christ. I don't believe that. Uh, I think that it's a portrayal of the ongoing conflict between good and evil, between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the beast throughout the course of the present age. Now, I do believe Revelation does take us all the way up to the second coming, but I don't think that we are to read it as if none of this applies to us now. It's only relevant just before Christ returns. I think it describes the tribulation that Christians will endure from the time of the first century all the way up until Jesus actually comes back. Okay. What, what about Daniel? Well, Daniel's a that's a little, a little bit more complex because the debate in Daniel is once again very similar to the one I just described about Revelation. Some people read Daniel as if he's prophesying events that will occur only in that last seven-year period of tribulation just before the return of Jesus. Others think that Daniel was prophesying events that were going to transpire largely uh, leading up to and consummating in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., around 154 B.C., when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, came in um, to Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and slaughtered the Jewish people. Um, and so much of Daniel, they believe, would have already been fulfilled uh, in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, another considerable portion of Daniel would be fulfilled in the coming of Christ in the 1st century. But that's not to say that Daniel doesn't also speak to the end of human history, because I believe he does. So I see Daniel as being kind of multi-layered in terms of what it's addressing. Events leading up to... Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, events leading up to and including the life and ministry of Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem, and also leading up to the consummation of history in the second coming. Okay. Well, I'm just going to take some time now and, and throw out some terms and have you respond to them. Obviously, you could talk for hours on them, but just according to your view, how does each fit with your view of amillennialism, which is my view as well? How should we understand them? So I'm just going to start out with the word rapture, and you can tell us what you think. Sure. Well, rapture is not a biblical term, but I do believe it expresses a biblical idea. First Thessalonians 4, we will be caught up into the air to be with Christ, and so we shall also always be with the Lord. First Corinthians 15, we, will, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So I think the rapture is what happens when Jesus returns. I believe he will descend in the clouds of heaven, and with the trumpet of the archangel, he will call up to himself and translate into his presence all living believers. We will receive at that moment our glorified, resurrected bodies, but we will continue in, in other words, we will continue in our descent to earth with Christ. 
let me illustrate it. The word in First Thessalonians 4, which says, we shall meet the Lord in the air. The word meet mm-hmm. is a Greek word that was often used in the ancient world to describe what would happen when a visiting dignitary would come to a city. And the people, the population of the city would go out to the outskirts of the city and greet him and meet him and then escort him into the city. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if uh, our president landed at uh, at an airport near your city and all the people would go out to the airport to to meet him and then to escort him back into the heart of the city, that's what happens in the rapture. We're caught up to meet Christ in the air, but we don't go into heaven somewhere. We continue as Christ comes to earth, that's his second coming, to defeat his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, and we constitute his retinue, as it were, his parade, his uh, the armies of heaven that will um, uh, that will participate in the defeat of all of his enemies. So I do believe in a rapture. I just don't believe in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't believe that this catching up to Christ in the air will happen before a seven-year period, and then only after that period does Christ come in his second advent. Okay. Let's take the second term. How about the word tribulation? Okay. Um, Many Christians of the dispensational, pre-tribulational perspective argue that the Great Tribulation is a period seven years in length that will occur between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus, um, and that will it will be precisely seven years long. I, I personally don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I do believe that we are in a season of tribulation. I think John, if you read John in the book of Revelation, he says, I am um, together with you in tribulation. Um, and in other words, I believe tribu- the tribulation started with the coming of Christ and especially at his ascension to the right hand of the Father. In other words, the church has been persecuted, oppressed, and opposed for the last 2,000 years and will continue to experience that. I do believe that as we approach the end of history, it will get worse. I think we will see a growing effort on the part of non-believers and anti-Christian institutions and governments to crush the church, uh, to do everything it can to eliminate it from the face of the earth. I don't believe it's only going to be, I don't know how long that's going to last. It could be seven days, seven weeks, seven years, 70 years. I I don't think the Bible tells us. Um, Now, having said all that, when when the Bible talk when Jesus talked about the great tribulation in Matthew 24, he said uh, it's it's a time such as never has been nor ever will be on the face of the earth. I think he's specifically referring to the tribulation suffered by the people of Israel from about 68 to 70 A.D. in the first century, when Rome uh, surrounded the city, laid siege to it, eventually destroyed the city and the temple, and uh, slaughtered uh, upwards of a million Jewish people and dispersed the others or sold them into slavery. I think that was the Great Tribulation. So I don't I don't see this as a seven-year period at the end of history. I do believe there's going to be tribulation at the end of history, but I don't know how long it's going to last, um, and I don't think that's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24. Let's take Antichrist. Well, you pick easy words, don't you? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Antichrist is a difficult one. Um, the word Antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation, contrary to what some people think. It only appears in 1 John. Um, Antichrist in 1 John, he says, is anybody who denies that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Anyone who denies the incarnation is the Antichrist. Now, is the Antichrist is Antichrist also the beast of the book of Revelation? Probably so. But the question is, is the beast of Revelation an individual human being or a collective symbol for all those who oppose Christ and his kingdom? And I think it's the latter. I think the beast um, and the false prophet are a very graphic image or symbol of all anti-Christian opposition. So, for example, uh, I'll give you a quick rundown, just run into my head. Um, the attempt by the Roman emperor Diocletian to, in the third century to destroy the Christian church was a manifestation of the beast. The, um, the bishop Arius, who denied the deity of Christ and was denounced at the Council of Nicaea, he was an embodiment of the beast. Um, I think late medieval Roman Catholicism that had very corrupted and undermined the gospel, um, 17th century deism, uh, evolutionary thought that emerged from Darwin in the 19th century, um, higher criticism that tries to undermine the authority and integrity of the Bible, um, uh, Marxism, um, the opposition and the, and the policies of Stalin, uh, the pro-abortion movement, the radical Islamic movement, uh, all of these are expressions of the beast. They are anti-Christian. They are attempting to oppose and thwart the expanse of the kingdom of Christ through the church. And I think the beast, therefore, is an image, a symbol of kind of a transcultural, demonically inspired or satanically inspired uh, attempt to crush the church of Jesus Christ. So individuals can be embodiments of the beast, institutions, educational institutions, governments, uh, philosophies, and the like. Now, the question is, will there be one final expression of the beast in a particular human being who will somehow be the one who mobilizes and energizes and leads this opposition to the church. I'm open to that possibility. I'm not close to that. It may well be that there's an individual antichrist who serves that role at the very end of history. I'm not totally persuaded of it yet, but I think the imagery in the New Testament does allow for that possibility. Okay. Well, I think I'll finish up with one question. You started out by saying how the, the point, of course, is is that everything's moving to the consummation of all things, the reversal of the fall, the new heavens and new earth. It seems like there is a ton of confusion about the end, but especially the nature of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how does the he heaven to which we, we talk about going, um, should God take us right now, how does that relate to the new heavens and the new earth? Can you sort out some of that confusion for us? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that the, the New Testament uses the word heaven in two senses. If I were to die of a heart attack right after I finished this conversation with you, I would go to heaven in the sense that I would enter into the conscious 
presence of Christ himself in a disembodied state. In other words, my body would die and remain on the earth, eventually be buried. My soul or my spirit, the immaterial part of who I am, would enter into the presence of Christ. In fact, I would enter into what I believe is the millennial rule of Jesus that we've been talking about. So I would, I think all those who have died uh, having trusted Christ are conscious, living, um, joined uh, together with all the saints and the angels around the throne of God, as Revelation 4 and 5 tells us. They are in heaven. But that's not their final destination or their final um, um, place where they will, will expend eternity. When Christ returns, uh, we will all believers will receive our glorified, resurrected bodies, and we will then witness what John in the book of Revelation calls the new Jerusalem coming down from God to, to earth. Heaven will, in a sense, merge with earth, and we will live on the new earth forever. You know, we oftentimes joke and talk about, well, that's heaven on earth. Well, one day that will literally be true. Mm-hmm. Heaven will come to earth. The presence of God will fully and finally manifest on the redeemed and renewed earth, and we will live in the presence of our risen Savior and with with other believers on this earth for eternity. But it's this earth redeemed, renewed, purged of all evil, glorified. Um, and in fact, when you read Revelation 21 and 22 that describes it, it describes it in terms that very clearly indicates it's a restored Garden of Eden, but a greatly magnified Garden of Eden. So that also is heaven. So heaven is where our loved ones who have died and gone to be with Jesus, that's where they are now. But it's not going to be out there forever on some cloud in some ethereal disembodied state. Heaven is going to be living on this earth in glorified physical bodies forever in the presence of Christ. Can't wait for that day. Oh, me too. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Sam, for talking to us and hope to get you back in Missouri someday. I know you lived here for quite a while, so I know your heart's got to somehow still be in Missouri. So let's try to get you here sometime. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I've enjoyed this, and I hope it's been helpful. It has. Thank you, and God bless. Well, what a blessing it was to have Sam on the program to talk about such a difficult yet comforting subject that Jesus Christ is alive and he's coming again. I'd encourage you to check out our website, caruschurch.org, and visit us on a Sunday at either 9 or 11 in Columbia or at 10 a.m. down in Jefferson City. And this might apply to you as well. If you're looking for a local church in which you can be trained and sent out to do ministry, we'd love to talk to you about our internship program. Go to that same web address, look at our internship program description, fill out an application. We have had over 30 people go through our program. We've sent people in our state, in the United States, and even across the world. And we'd love to talk to you about how we can equip you and send you out in ministry. Until next time, thanks for listening to Cars Deep and Wide. Deep and Wide.